I'm going to begin today by just reading a passage by, it's the Apostle Paul. It's him writing as he saw that life was going to take a turn for him. And it's a brilliant little passage. Listen to this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brilliant passage. Our subject today is death. Not the most exciting or most anticipated subject, but here's what I hope to accomplish. I want at the end of this sermon, for yes, you to understand death, but I want you to have a hope, a deep, powerful, strong hope. All right, let me explain that hope like this. I've been reading a book, just about done with it. It's by Viktor Frankl. He's a psychologist who went through the death camps of World War II, and it's called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a brilliant book. It's so incredible. At the end of section one of this book, where he is kind of summing up his entire testimony of surviving just multiple death camps, Dachau and Auschwitz, the worst of the worst, he says this, he kind of says, what he saw was there's these different kind of people. And so I kind of summed them up this way. There's number one, people that jumped in. These were individuals that were prisoners in Auschwitz or whatever concentration camp it was, and they actually began to side with the guards. They were used by the guards. They would do the dirty work of the guards. And what Viktor Frankl says about those people, he called them capos, they were the worst of the worst. They were actually meaner and harsher than the guards themselves. They jumped into it. In order to survive whatever, they became super evil. That was class number one. Class number two, um, it's these people that I just called those that gave up. So these were people that were in the camp and they had some kind of a desire, some kind of a hope. And when that hope didn't happen, it's like they just gave up and they died. So a few weeks ago, I talked about a warden that was a warden over his bunk house. He was a prisoner and he had a dream that on the 30th of March, they were going to be set free. When that day came though, and everyone realized it wasn't going to happen, the guy got sick and the next day he died. It was just, he gave up. It was the second kind of people. The third kind of people were these people that they faded out. And their hope wasn't in the camp. Their hope was, when I get out of the camp, I'll get back to my family, back to my kids, back to my business, back to my prominence in society, back to whatever it was. They had a hope that was outside of the camp. And what he found was these people that pegged their hope on that, when they got out and they got everything that they thought they wanted, guess what? It wasn't big enough. And these people ended up becoming very depressed and not a few of them just committed suicide because they had pegged their hope on something that when they got out, they realized it wasn't as great as they thought and they thought, why do we even live? But there was a fourth group of people and these were the people that I say they rose up. They rose up. He said they had courage. They helped. They they were the people that would give up their rations to help somebody that was going to die. 
there were people that were just incredible. They were heroes. And this is where he's, he has a very famous saying from those kind of people. He says this, and I'm quoting now. Life only has meaning if you have a hope and meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. That was this last class of people. They had some kind of a transcendent hope that it didn't matter what that death camp brought, even if it brought death itself, they still had hope. They were heroes. I'll give you an example. He is called the Saint of Auschwitz. You can Google him. It's a phenomenal story. His name is Maximilian Kolbe. And this is how he became the Saint of Auschwitz. They're in Auschwitz. It appears somebody escaped the prison. They didn't actually escape. They actually fell into the latrine and drowned. And so they thought this guy had escaped. And what the Nazis did was this. If someone escaped from their prison, they would randomly select 10 people. And those 10 people would be put in a dungeon to starve to death. As an example, don't escape. So they start to just randomly select 10 people. One of the people they select just starts to sob and to cry and say, my wife and my children, no. And so Maximilian Colby, this priest, steps forward and says, sir, can I take his spot? And normally, the SS would just beat the snot out of somebody like that and say, now there are 11 people that are going to starve to death. But in this instance, they said, okay. So Maximilian Colby is put down in this dungeon where they're not given any water and any food. Normally, it only took a couple days for people to die because they were so malnourished and they were just walking skeletons anyways. And so Maximilian Kolbe is down there, and slowly, one by one, these other prisoners die. The whole time he is helping them and encouraging them and praying for them and blessing them, and then they're all dead except for Maximilian Kolbe. And he doesn't die. And day after day goes by. Two weeks goes by, and he's still not dying. And the guards now are starting to freak out because they don't want to go down there anymore. Because when they go down there, what they find is Maximilian Kolbe asking them how they're doing and trying to pray for them. And one guard said this. He said, truly, this is the best man I have ever seen in my life. And so finally they say, we can't do this anymore. So they called the camp doctor. And they said, you need to come down here and you need to finish this guy off. And so the camp doctor came down there. And on the 14th of August, 1941, the camp doctor injected Maximilian Kolbe with carbolic acid. And as he was doing that, Maximilian Kolbe was praying for that doctor. And that's why he's called the saint of Auschwitz. That's a hope that lets you rise above everything else. The guy he saved, Frank, and I don't know if I'm getting his last name right. Someone that's Polish could probably correct me. Gajownazek. He lived to be 95 years old. And on the 14th of August, every single year, he would take the train back to Auschwitz, go back into that, into that dungeon to thank the man who gave his life so he might live. That's a hope. That's a hope. My desire in this message is to show that we have that same hope, that we have that hope. So there are two predominant ideas about death. There's the one that our culture kind of preaches, and it's the big one, and then there's the biblical narrative of death, and they're very different. So I'm going to describe them both and try to apply it to us. First, here's what our culture says. It's naturalism. 
Do you guys know what naturalism is? Naturalism is simply this. Everything that you see, life, stars, planets, galaxies, the universe, all of it came by natural processes. There is no God. It all happened just by chance. That's naturalism. Okay? So here's what naturalism says death is. And I'll use an illustration from the movie The Lion King. And I've asked this a couple times. Do you, who has watched the movie The Lion King? Okay, good. Because, you know, you got to start. It's an old movie. At some point, I have to be like, i got to get a new illustration because nobody knows what I'm talking about anymore. All right, so in the movie The Lion King, there's this scene. It's before dad dies. And Simba is talking to his dad about eating antelope and this kind of process. And it's the whole circle of life song, right? And so uh, Simba says, well, how are we a part of the circle of life? I can see that, you know, the antelope eat the grass and then we eat the antelope. How are we a part of the circle of life? And so his dad explains, hey, well, Simba, here's how it works. The antelope eat the grass and they get big. Then we eat the antelope and then one day we die and we go into the ground and then we become grass that the antelope eats, the circle of life. So essentially, their hope is, Simba, your fertilizer right? That's it. Will that get you through the death camp? Hey, you're a fertilizer. Take hope. Be good fertilizer. Is that going to get you through cancer? Is that going to get you through depression? Is that going to get you through suicidal thoughts? Is that going to get you through the death of your loved ones? They were, they were a good fertilizer. No way, right? And yet that is the predominant theory we have right now, but I don't think anyone believes it, right? You read or watch, uh, I just read Hamlet again. I remember reading it in high school, and I thought, I better read that again. That's like one of the most disturbing books I've ever read, isn't it? Like, how did he get so famous? I mean, you take this great kind of guy, and then he ends up just this, ah, just a terrible tyrant. Like, it's so depressing. But in all of Shakespeare's plays, death is the tyrant, right? It's not fertilizer. This isn't the circle of life. We're not going to sing and dance about this thing. We hate death, right? Romeo and Juliet. When Romeo finds Juliet, he's not like, well, she was good fertilizer. And you know, we'll bury her and the grass will be really green right there. It's a tyrant. No one actually believes it. And here's the problem with naturalism. If you actually adopt naturalism, here's what happens to you. So real famous, smart people like Albert Camus and John Paul Sartre, here's what they said. And they were naturalists. They said, when you become a naturalist, all morals are equivalent. What that means is this, nothing matters. It does not matter if you're good or you're bad, because either way, you're fertilizer, okay? So it does not matter if you hit a child or if you kissed a child. They're morally equivalent. That's what naturalism says. But does anyone live that way? I've had the privilege to be at the deathbed of believers, agnostic people. Agnostic people say, I just don't know. And atheist people, they say, there is no God. I've had the privilege of talking with people on their deathbed. I have never had one say, you know what? My life didn't matter. It didn't matter that I hit the kid or kissed the kid. All of them at the end of their life are wondering, did my life have meaning? Was I a good dad? Was I a good husband? Was I a good grandpa? What did my life have meaning? Did I kiss the child or did I hit the child? 
That might be the predominant theory, but no one actually lives that way. Nobody does. Nobody goes to a funeral and looks at the body and says, well, they're good fertilizer. No, what do we say? They were a good person. They did this. We actually care. No one believes it, okay? Because if we think deep enough, here's what we know. We know there's something wrong in death. It's not the circle of life. It's not normal. It's not natural. Something's broken in this. A much better view is this. If you saw the movie Interstellar, throughout that movie, there's a Dylan Thomas poem that's repeated over and over again. And the Dylan Thomas poem goes like this. It says, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I think that is a much better picture of how we actually view death. We rage against it. Why? Because we know we're not fertilizer. That's where the biblical view comes in. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you ever want to know about how things get started and what really means something, you always turn to the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 2, we start learning something about us that's very important to know. So look at Genesis 2 verse 7. Then Yahweh God, the creator God, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, literally a nefesh. It's a term used for us from that point on. What did that text just say? Are we fertilizer? No, it says that we're dust plus something, plus the divine. It's as if in the creation of mankind, heaven kisses earth, and the product of that kiss is humanity. We're both material, but we're also immaterial, right? We're dust, but then we're given divine breath. We are more than fertilizer, and that's why we sense this thing. If you're with us on Easter, I said, that's why we fight death so much, because we know, I call it the echo of Eden, we know we are created to be something else. We are created to be bigger. We're not just fertilizer. We're not just part of this circle of life. We have a different destiny. We're much different. We're not like Simba. We're not like the antelope. We are We are divine plus dust, heaven plus earth, those two combined. And we're different than the animal, animal kingdom. Have you ever gone to wildlife safari? And you're driving around and you're waiting to get to the lions. And you got all your kids in the car and you're like, hey, the lions are coming. And when you get to the lions, what do the lions always do? Sleep, right? So what do your kids do? They roll down the window and what do they do? Wake up, get up lion, come on, do something. What does the lion do? Flick his tail right? In the zoo, lions sleep for 22 hours straight. They get up, they eat their meal prepared for them, medium rare, and then they go back to sleep. They're not doing Pilates. They're not doing Piloxing. They're not watching their cholesterol. Why? Because they don't care. They don't care. It's why 
Most animals in the zoo are very, very unhealthy. But we, we're different. We can have an easy life, and what do we still do? We do Pilates, and watch our cholesterol, and we run, and we do all this stuff because we're trying to outrun this enemy called death because we know we were not designed to die. We're divine. We've got the kiss of that in us. So here's what happens. Skip down a couple verses, verse 15. And Yahweh God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. First mention of death in the Bible right here. How does Adam know what death is? Never happened before, right? According to what most of us think, how does Adam know what death is? Why doesn't he say, well, God, what is death? He doesn't. Very fascinating. But God says this to him. Hey, there's all these trees. Eat all that you want. But there is one tree, an evil bad tree. How did an evil bad tree get into the garden? It's an interesting thought. There's an evil bad tree in here that if you eat of this tree, look out. It'll kill you. What happens to him? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the garden Uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens to them? Did they die? Yes or no? Simple question. Did they die? Yes. Did they die? Yes or no? (laughs) Who says yes, they died? Who says no, they didn't? Who says, I don't know? Who says you're tricking me and you're going to ruin me? (laughs) And I'm not falling for it. The text says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they die the day they ate of it? Who says yes? Who says no? Bunch of you just will not fall for this. Okay, they did die that day. God is defining for us this concept of death. So what happened to Adam and Eve the day they ate of that fruit? They were kicked out of the garden and they no longer had that one-on-one fellowship with God. What is that? It's separation. They were separated from this great place called the Garden of Eden and they were separated from their relationship with God. So the Bible defines death differently than we do. We define death as becoming fertilizer. The Bible defines death as separation. In the day that you eat of this, you will be separate from my kingdom, where my rule is in the Garden of Eden, and you're going to be separate from a relationship with me. That's going to be broken. So the Bible defines death as separation. So you come to the New Testament, it's a theme. Jesus will say, Luke chapter 12. Hey, don't fear the person that can kill your body, but then do nothing to your soul. What's he saying there? He says, when you die, it's separation. The material and the immaterial separate. Heaven and earth part. Dust and divine are divided. That's death. That's why Paul would say for 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body, separated from my body, is to be present with the Lord. That's separation. So Paul would say 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 and 17. The outward man is perishing. This dust, it's, it's getting dustier. But the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's becoming stronger and stronger. That same thing, immaterial, material, divine dust, lasting, perishing, okay? So the Bible defines death as separation. 
So Ephesians 2.1 says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What's it saying? You're separate from God's kingdom like Eden and from a relationship with God because of your sins. You're separate. That's what death is. Death is separation. Okay? So that's death. You have in all of us, a desire to live in Eden and to be in relationship with God. We want to be back to that. We don't like the separation because we know it is unnatural. Well, something happens in the New Testament to this unnatural thing, this unnatural separation of community, of knowing God, of being in a good place with good people. Something happens that changes death, and it's brilliant. So now turn with me to the last book of the Bible. It's Revelation. Verse 10 of chapter 12, Revelation 12, 10. Revelation and Genesis actually have a lot in common. They're, they're tying in a lot of themes. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. Who's that? Serpent, Genesis 3. Has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This unnatural thing that everyone is afraid of, all of a sudden in Revelation, we're not afraid of it anymore. We have a hope that allows us to rise above this thing. We're not afraid of it anymore, right? That's why you get great stories like that of John Harper. If you don't know don't know John Harper? Phenomenal, phenomenal Bible teacher. He took over a church of 25 people in Glasgow, Scotland, called the Paisley Street Baptist Church, just a failing, fledgling little church. Overnight, it goes to 500. Before cars, before automobiles, before any of that, 500 people are traveling, walking, whatever. You think it's hard to get to church right now? You think it's hard parking way out there and walking in? Okay, you're miles to hear this guy. It's brilliant. Then tragedy strikes, wife, kids, all except for one die. So he's left with his six-year-old daughter, Annie, and he decides, I'm going to go to the United States. I'm going to visit my sister in the United States for a little break. So he goes down to England and gets on a marvel of modern technology, a ship that was the greatest ship ever built, a ship that could not be sunk. Guess what the name of that ship was? The Titanic. It sinks. He dies, and his daughter is saved. Four years later, at a little church in Canada, this young Scottish man stands up and he says, I am a survivor of the Titanic, and I am John Harper's last convert. And they said, what? He said, here's how it went down. The ship sinks. I'm holding on to this piece of wood, but it's freezing cold, and I knew I'm going to lose my grip on this piece of wood, and I'm going to die. When all of a sudden, John Harper came up close to me, and he said, Man, are you saved? And this young man said, no. And so John Harper said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then a wave took John Harper away for a couple minutes. And then a wave brought John Harper back a second time. And so John Harper recognizes him again and says, man, are you saved now? (laughs) You had time to think about it. Are you saved now? And the man says, no. And so John Harper took off his life preserver and threw it to this young man and said, you need this more than I do, and swam off to minister to other people. Naturalism says, moron, moron. Would any of us say that? No, we say hero, noble, pure, courageous. That's the hope 
I want to have. That's what I want to be. I want to love my life, not even unto death. There's a bigger reason for me being here. I want that kind of hope. Do you have that kind of hope? A hope that death camps cannot extinguish. Do you have that kind of hope? Or if you were in the death camp, would you jump in with the enemy or give up or dry up? Do you have the kind of hope in you that a John Harper has, that a Maximilian Colby has, that a Jim Elliott has? Do you have that kind of hope? Because it is that kind of hope that has changed the world we know. That they overcame the enemy, the serpent. Why? Because they loved not their lives even unto death. They had a hope that could not be extinguished. I don't have that kind of hope, Matt. How do these people have this kind of hope? I'll give you two reasons today. Number one, because they knew their Savior's work. And number two, they knew the saints' home. First, they knew the Savior's work. Flip back with me to the most important chapter on the resurrection. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this, verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Pretty good question. I've asked that question. With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Okay. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. Death, according to Simba theology, death is an execution or it ends everything. There's no hope. That's death. Death, according to our Savior's theology, is now a gardener. And it takes this seed of this body and it plants it and it becomes something better than you could ever possibly imagine. That these seeds are going to be planted one day and winter is going to end and we are going to rise up and blossom into something that's brilliant. Brilliant. Right? What's more glorious, a redwood seed or a redwood tree? Right? Would you go drive two hours down 199 to go see some redwood seeds? Boy, those are awesome. Post that on Instagram, man. Look at those. Look at the size of that seed. Wow, that is awesome. Get that bad dog. No, but I'll drive two hours to go walk through the Avenue of the Giants. Unbelievable. That's what the Bible's saying. If you have this hope, don't you know that you're just a seed right now and you're going to be planted and when winter is over, you're going to spring up into something unbelievable. How? How's that possible? Keep reading. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then comes to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus defanged death. Well, how do you do that? Revelation, the book, gives these great pictures of some really difficult theological truths. One of them is found in chapter 6. It's called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. You've probably heard about it. And what that picture is this, there's some things that we all fear. 
And so one of the horses is war and plagues and famine and death. Everyone fears those things. We all have fears. Economy. Your kids, how are they going to turn out? We fear ISIS. We all have these fears. And so it's saying, look at these fears, look out. But here's what it says in picture form. The first guy is this white rider on a white horse, and he's the Antichrist. And he has a bow. It's his weapon. But guess what's missing in that picture? Guess what that guy does not have? He has no arrows. He just has the weapon. What happened to all his arrows? All of his arrows were spent on Jesus Christ on the cross. All right? Revelation, the purpose of that book is simple. It's to give hope to a group of people that we're going to go through some death camps because Rome was trying to extinguish the church. So it was trying to give hope. Take hope. And so the hope is, look it. The worst of the worst, Antichrist, Satan incarnate, he doesn't have any weapons left. Why? If you go back in your Bible to Genesis 3, there's the very first mention of Jesus doing his work. And it says this, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise his heel. What happens when you step on a snake? What does it do to you? It bites you. Jesus on the cross absorbed all the poison of the serpent, has no weapons left so that you and I would no longer have to fear sin and death. His gun is unloaded. Imagine this for a second. Imagine you leave here, you go home, and there is a five foot two, 90 pound guy robbing your house. Okay, and you're a strapping guy or a tough girl. And so you come into your house and there he is and he pulls a gun on you. If you knew that gun was not loaded, what would you do? You would take the gun from him and then you would share the gospel. You wouldn't have any fear of him. That's what the Bible is presenting about the enemy now. Don't you know the sting is gone? Don't you know that you are a seed and you're being planted in something more brilliant than you could ever imagine is going to come up? That God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and power and soundness of mind. And when you have this hope, I don't care what death camp comes, you can rise up. You can rise up. You will be different. You will live different. You'll be the Maximilian Colbys. You'll be the John Harpers. You'll be the Jim Elliots. You'll be the person at your workplace that has a hope and courage and absorbs things. Why? Because you know I am more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. You must know, number one, your Savior's work for you. Number two, if you want to have that kind of hope, you have to know the saint's home. So Revelation 21 and 22 describe for us where we're headed. And there's a little phrase that I love in chapter 21. It says this, that where we are going, when new Jerusalem, when heaven invades earth, that where we're going, there will be no more night. What did night do in Genesis chapter one? Remember God made the day and then he separated the day with what? With night. Night's a separation. In new Jerusalem, there's no more night. What does that mean? There's no more separation. There's no more death. So it's like this. Here's how I explain it. All of us have really good days. Or just our favorite day. I love to go to Brookings when it's 85 degrees out and there's a good surf and I go out and try to surf. I'm not a very good surfer, so I don't really surf. I just go out and play in the waves and get tumbled and it's fun. And then I go out and go fish, catch some fish, come back in. We have a big fish taco feed. Family's there, friends are there. Just brilliant, so much fun. 
and you're sitting around the campfire at night and you start to swap these stories that get really close to lies, you know, when you're doing that. And you're just kind of laughing. You're like, oh, I kind of know you stretched that one. But it's just a good, great time, right? And, and it's just awesome. But then there comes the moment, the moment where you have to say, good night, goodbye. This ends. Now we're separated. So what Revelation 21 is saying, where we're headed, that never happens. That the good day, the great day, just continues on and on and on and on because that's what you're destined to do, to live without separation, to live without good nights, to live in community, to know people and be known by people, to be in God's presence, and that's coming for us. You have to know that. The hope that lets people in death camps and in suffering rise above all that, the hope is right here. That's what does it. So we're going to go to the table here in a second. And here's what I want you to think through when you have the elements. I want you to think through what God has done for you, what the cross actually accomplished for you. That the Bible says you're more than a conqueror now, that I have redeemed you, that I have bought you, that I have forgiven you, that I have atoned for you, that I have given you victory over all the enemies of this world. Do you know that? That Satan doesn't have a thing on you, that his bow is empty, the gun is unloaded, that we have nothing to fear. That God has not given us that spirit, but of love and power and soundness of mind. When you realize all that Christ has done for you, you're able to rise up and become a hero. And Grants Pass, Oregon needs some heroes right now. Grants Pass, Oregon needs some people that can rise up and start demonstrating a life that's beautiful and brilliant. And we only do that when we have this kind of hope. And so, Father, I pray for individuals who came in here today feeling like they've been in a death camp, struggling, suffering, maybe hopeless, depressed, and suicidal. I pray that today, when we look at the broken body and spent blood of the Son of God, it would cause each one of us to have a hope eternal that springs up, that becomes the anchor of our soul, that we know that death is no longer the executioner, The very worst thing that can happen, the greatest fear is a gardener now plants us so we've become something more brilliant than this world has ever seen or imagined. So plant that hope in your people today. Lord, where we have jumped in with the enemy or given up or faded away, Lord, I pray that hope right now would heal us there, that we would be able to rise up and live like your son Jesus, victorious. So may the elements do that for us today, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 